the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. It's like the first edict was implemented as a result of our great forefather Adam who sinned against God, rebelled against God, and so the sin nature was passed down through the seed of humanity. So therefore, we are born into sin, we are conceived in sin, we are given birth by our mothers, and we are sinful from birth, and we are sinful on the day we die. We, are, we inherit a sin nature, and by nature we sin. Okay, there's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. We've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Esther. One of the foundational lessons we learn before we can truly appreciate the salvation God has given us is that we are sinners, no matter how many good things we do. The Bible says that no one is righteous. No, not one. Even the most righteous deeds we can perform are as filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. Today, Pastor Gary will be challenging us to remember continuously that every good thing we have in life is because of God's grace. We haven't earned anything because we're good. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Esther chapter 8 for part 2 of today's message titled, Turning the Tables. Xerxes was not obligated to bring Mordecai into his royal court and give him a crown and royal robes and the signet ring. He did it exclusively because the king was just showing favor and exercising grace. And Mordecai comes into the king's court and he gets adorned in this royal way here. Now, again, in verse 15, it tells us back here in chapter 8, verse 15, that he left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. So he even gets new threads out of this gig. I mean, he, this guy is being completely promoted and celebrated now in the king's court, and it's all because of the king's favor. God intervened here, and he took a man who was destined for death, and he gave him life. And more than that, he gave him royal position in the king's court, and it was all because of grace. Now, if that story sounds familiar to you, it should. Because if you know Christ as your Savior, this, in effect, is what God has done for us. 
Okay? We didn't earn or deserve the right to be in the king's presence. But God, our king, by virtue of his grace, bestowed favor on us through Jesus, his son. And now he, he invites us and ushers us into his presence that we could spend eternity with him. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But by his grace, he has opened up the king's court for us, and he has robed us, the Bible says, with robes of righteousness. Let me just kind of make the comparison here for you. The Bible speaks about us in Christ as also being adorned with royal robes. Did you know this? In fact, in Revelation 19.8, it says that when Christ returns, he will adorn the saints with fine linen, bright and clean, given us to wear. And Isaiah even saw this in advance in Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. The Bible speaks about the royal position that God will promote us to, if you will, in His presence. He bestows on us the privilege and the right to be in His presence, to be adorned with robes of righteousness, to have royalty bestowed on us as kids of the King. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says. 1 Peter 2 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does God say about us? He says, I am making you a royal priesthood. I am bestowing upon you the promotion of royalty because I am saving you and redeeming you and my favor is upon you all because of my grace. This is what God does for us. So the Bible in typology gives us this picture through the life of Mordecai where similar things happen with us. By grace, our king gives us this position of royalty, adorns us with royal robes. And how Mordecai, it says here, was also given a crown. Do you know the Bible says that there are five types of crowns that God will distribute to the saints? When we go to be with him, five different types of crowns. Here's one example. 2 Timothy 4.8 talks about a crown of righteousness. Paul says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not for me only, but for also all who believe and who long for his appearing. So 2 Timothy 4.8 mentions the crown of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 9.25 mentions an incorruptible crown. Revelation 2.10 talks about the crown of life. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 talks about the crown of rejoicing. And 1 Peter 5.4 talks about the crown of glory. That God, on this day, when we stand before him, because of what Christ has done for us, will hand out crowns. Now, I don't know which one you might get, all right? And I know it's not a contest. You know, can you just imagine people in heaven like, what's that? Oh, that's a crown of rejoicing. I have the crown of righteousness right here. That's what I have. It's not going to be that. And by the way, by the way, even after we received various crowns, get ready to toss them at Jesus' feet. Because Revelation chapter 4 says we're going to be so enthralled in his presence that we will lay down, fall down at his feet, and we will cast our crowns at his feet in his presence. So we're going to just feel so undone. We're going to be like, why am I walking around like I'm somebody special? We're going to be throwing our crowns at the feet. The only thing you're going to have left on your head is hat hair. 
right? That's all you're going to have left is just, you know, the look like you used to wear a crown, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, so did you, didn't you? Then we throw it all down at Jesus' feet. The signet ring. Mordecai gets a signet ring from the king. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 1, 21. Now it is God who, were, who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now check this out. It says there in 1, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 22. He set his seal of ownership on us. You look up almost any Bible commentary, and it will say that that's another way of referring to a royal signet ring, where God has impressed on us His very impression that signifies we belong to Him. And He has given us of His Spirit that is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, you put this all together. Mordecai, given royal position, Royal robes, a crown, a signet ring. The Bible says that in Christ, he makes us a royal priesthood. He adorns us in robes of righteousness. He is going to give us a crown, and he has placed his seal of ownership on us. Do you see the similarity here? Do you see the biblical typology? So the, the takeaway from Mordecai's position is this, that he is a picture of our life in Christ welcomed into God's presence by God's grace and given favor, a new identity, royal robes, and a crown. That's in store for us. And all because God has brought about this great reversal from the condition that we were in before we came to know Christ to this wonderful position of favor by God's grace in His presence for all eternity. The second great reversal we see in the closing chapters here is on a, on a larger context. Okay, so Mordecai kind of symbolizes the, the life of the individual whose life gets redeemed in Christ, new position in Christ, new identity in Christ. The Jewish people here, their, their whole condition changes. So that's the second great reversal. The Jews' condition gets turned from a death sentence to a life status. Okay, remember... Haman gets King Xerxes to sign off on this edict that all the Jews should be annihilated. Esther then, at, at a great risk to her personal safety, exposes the plot. Haman gets executed. Then it tells us here in chapter 8, we read it a moment ago, that Esther then makes this second request of King Xerxes. And she says to him, King, I got... I got a second request because the edict that was issued by the king under Haman's evil plot is still in effect. And they are quickly approaching the day that the Persian army has been ordered to go around slaughtering all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. So Queen Esther makes the second appeal. She says, with all due respect, king, you're going to have to revoke that, that edict that you signed off on because all my people are, are going to be killed. There's a problem. And if you know anything about ancient history, and this is true about Persia, the Persian Empire at this time, when a king issued an edict sealed by the king's signet ring, it could not be revoked. It could not be repealed. It was a done deal. The only thing that the king could do was to enact a second edict to counter the first one. And that's what he does. He says to Esther, with all due respect, sweetheart, I can't revoke, I can't repeal an edict in my name with my seal. What I can do is I'm going to issue a second edict that will negate 
or counter the first edict. So here's what the second edict is. The second edict that he allows Mordecai to write and to seal with the signet ring basically says this, that the Jews are free to assemble and to bear arms to defend themselves. So he's like, I can't stop the Persian army. They're going to they're gonna come on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. What I can do, though, is I can pronounce this order that all the Jews are free to fight and defend themselves, take up arms and defend themselves. Now, by the way, this would make a great Bible study on the Second Amendment, but I'm not going to go down that path, all right? But, that, but nevertheless, I mean, this, this is, this is self-defense, right to assemble, right to bear arms. It's right out of the Constitution. But anyway, that's for another Bible study. So here's the deal. He says they can fight, and fight they do. So the second edict goes out. They take up arms. They fight. Look at chapter 9, first five verses. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. Okay, that's the first edict. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now, look at this great reversal, the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews. Because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. And then verse 5 says that the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, we'll pause there. If you read through the rest of chapter 9, here's what we find out. That the death toll is pretty high. But the death toll is among the Persians. That when you add up all the numbers, the Jews have defended themselves to the toll of more than 75,000 Persians who die. More than 75,000 Persians. Now, not a single Jew loses his or her life. At least the Bible is silent about it. It doesn't make mention of any Jew who died. Now, maybe some Jews did. We don't know because the Bible doesn't say either way. It just is silent on it. But what it does add up are the number of Persians who were killed this day because God turned the tables and, and, um, and fought on behalf of his people. And, and this issue, this edict was issued in order for the Jews to defend themselves. Now, this is a great reversal. And as a result, the people went from a death status to, uh, rather a death sentence to a life status. This is very similar to the condition of humanity. Remember again, the Jewish people in a larger sense were a type of humanity. Humanity is under an edict. It's a death sentence. We are all going to face destruction. There is a day appointed unto man for us to each die. We are on a path of death. It's like the first edict was implemented as a result of our great forefather Adam who sinned against God, rebelled against God, and so the sin nature was passed down through the seed of humanity. So therefore, we are born into sin, we are conceived in sin, we are given birth by our mothers, and we are sinful from birth, and we are sinful on the day we die. We, are, we inherit a sin nature, and by nature we sin. 
Okay, there's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. We've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. We will all die because of sin. Romans 5, 12 says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Okay, so a first edict has been pronounced over humanity. God said to Adam, On the day you eat of the fruit, the one way that you might rebel against me, you shall surely die. Death sentence was put in place because of our own sinful rebellion. When God intervened providentially because of his grace towards us and offers his son Jesus on the cross, he doesn't revoke the first edict. Humanity is still on a path of death and destruction. What God did do was he initiated a second edict that nullifies the first. That in essence, the second edict was given unto us through the cross. That as many as who would believe and receive can have their sins forgiven and be gloriously saved. And our death sentence can be converted to a life status. Because our king has initiated a second edict that would counter the first one. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 8, 1 and 2. When he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. To them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Okay? Two laws that are in place. The first edict is the law of sin and death. Put in place, pronounced over humanity because of man's sinfulness against God. That the soul that sins shall die. But then there's another law, the law of the spirit of life that has set me free from the law of sin and death. God initiates a second edict. The cross is the second edict that, that, that then counters the first law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set me free because now through Christ, my faith in the finished work of Christ, your faith in the finished work of Christ changes then. Here's the reversal, the reverse of the curse. From the first edict, which was a death sentence, to the second edict, which is a life status to all who believe. Isn't that good news, friends? Amen? And so here's, here's the, the takeaway from this second biblical typology. The Jews' condition turned from a death sentence to a life status. So we have passed from death to life, John 5, 24, through faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the third and the final great reversal that God does here in this story. Everyone's disposition gets turned from mourning to rejoicing. Look here also in chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. Chapter 9, verse 20 says that Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and, notice, as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. As a result of this great, wonderful historical event, the Jews enacted from this day forward, even to today, the feast or the festival of Purim. Now, Purim is a Hebrew word that just simply means lots. Because in the story of Esther, Haman, with this wicked plan to annihilate the Jews, tells us, the Bible tells us that he cast the lot 
to determine what day they should be annihilated. So it's like rolling the dice to figure out, okay, what should be the day that they should be annihilated? And so the word lot in Hebrew is poor, and the plural of the word lots is purim. So even today, the Jews celebrate the festival of Purim. I've been in Israel on one occasion over the Feast of Purim, and it's a wonderful occasion of celebration. And what the Jews do, and even here in the United States, on on the day of Purim, which this particular year, in 2016, it fell on March the 24th, they go to the synagogue, and the whole book of Esther is read, so they can be reminded of this story. That's the first thing they do. And then later in the day, they get all the little girls dressed up as little Queen Esthers, and all the little boys dress up like little Mordecais. And they go throughout the streets of Israel, and adults give them candy, and it's just a great day of of celebration and costumes and all this kind of stuff. And they also get dressed in costumes because it reflects the story of Esther, where they are saying that even though God wasn't always revealed by name, He is revealed kind of in a costume like he is hidden, but he's providential in the whole story. And then at the end of Purim, at the end of the day, the Jews gather in their homes and they have a great feast and they have a celebration and they enjoy a meal together. So it's a day of great celebration, how God providentially intervened on behalf of the people whom he loves. And friends, this is what God does with our salvation. He has turned our mourning into joy. Because before you came to know Christ... Your life was hopeless. And then you came to know Christ, and now for the first time you have hope. Before you came to know Christ, you were in a place of shame and guilt. And then you understand the forgiveness of Christ, and you come into a place of grace and forgiveness. And he changes our mourning into rejoicing. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 13 says, I will turn their mourning into gladness, and I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. In Isaiah 61, it says that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. And later in verse 2, it says, To comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. David would write in Psalm 30, verse 11, he says, You turned my wailing into dancing, and you removed my sackcloth. Those are garments of mourning and clothed me with joy. And so the takeaway on this last one is this, that salvation turns our life from mourning to rejoicing. I want to say this in closing to the book of Esther. God's name, again, is nowhere seen in the book of Esther. But he is everywhere revealed. I want the book of Esther to be a reminder for all of us that God is at work behind the scenes in your life and in my life. You may not be able to see him, but please know this. His silence is not his absence. His silence is not his absence. His silence is his providence. And that God is at work to accomplish his perfect plan and purposes in your life whether or not you can see it or appreciate it at the moment. Know this about God, that His visible hand of miracles is just as powerful and just as spectacular as His unseen hand of providence. Trust Him. Some of you are at a place right now in your lives where you're just you're wishing to see some visible, tangible evidence that God hears you and that God knows what you're going through and that God sees. Know the book of Esther is that visible, tangible reminder to us 
that even in those unseen times, God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life. And he is about reversing things that seem hopeless to you, that you feel helpless about. God reverses things. And God does it for his good name and to accomplish his good purposes in your life. Amen? So trust him, church. Trust the providential hand of God who loves you and has a perfect plan for your life and is at work even now behind the scenes. Amen and amen. We're so glad you tuned in for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Be sure to join us next time to continue the story of Queen Esther and discover her courage to help step into difficult or impossible situations. Esther was an orphan and part of an exiled group of people, yet God elevated her and used her in mighty ways. No matter who you are or what your situation is, God can use your life for His glory. He also promises to walk alongside you in every moment, providing strength, courage, and love everlasting. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. And you're invited to join us for weekend services of worship and learning together. Our services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. Or for more in-depth study time in the Word, join us Wednesday nights at 7. If you're not in the area, you can still hear more from Pastor Gary. Live stream our services or download the Cornerstone Connection app, providing you with access to our archive of teachings. Find out more at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so glad we had this time together today, and we encourage you to join us again for more in the book of Esther right here on Cornerstone Connection. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.